So we're just going to go on the air, just be fully. All right, Krishna. Um, we are here, my last evening on this visit in uh, Tucson, Arizona. I'd like to introduce a very dear God sister, Sandamani, who's an outstanding Vaishnavi, and who has built a wonderful community here in Tucson, including the famous Govinda's restaurant. And so she's going to introduce tonight's topic. So take it away, Sandamani. Hare Krishna. So Maharaj is very kind and uh, he's very open to our suggestions. So I had two suggestions. Uh, one, because he's been translating and working on the Mahabharata for so long and we've been waiting and now we have one book. But So I asked him to give one thriller of the Mahabharata. Uh, well, a thriller? Yeah, thriller. Oh. Everything's pretty thrilling in the Mahabharata, so you can pick any. Okay. story and then uh, talk about how uh, how to see Krishna's hand in adversities because we just had a fire here so that was a big adversity a four-month uh, restruction and um, it was very difficult for us and then individually in everyone's lives they have different adversities so I thought that would be a great topic and it would resonate with all of us and with all of you thank you okay <clears throat> So, um, I would like to discuss, as you mentioned, adversity. When the earth was thrown into a terrible crisis and what Krishna did about it. Um, that meets the topic, doesn't it? So, actually, we'll begin with two events that took place seemingly unrelated, but they became very much related. One event took place on higher planets, another on Earth. On higher planets, there was, as described in the eighth canto of the Bhagavatam, there was a great battle between the devas and the asuras, demigods and the demons. And the uh, trigger for this was that the Asuras and Asuras churned the ocean of milk using Vasuki as a rope and Mount, uh, not Mount Meru. Yeah. Mount Meru as a churning rod. Okay. See that? Every time I think I made a mistake, it turns out I didn't. <laughs> so using Mount Meru as a churning rod, and, and of course Mount Meru was placed on the back of Lord Tortoise, as Prabhupada describes it, Kurma. So the nectar was produced, and Vishnu knew that the demons were going to use this for really bad purposes. It could only be entrusted to the demigods. It's like you don't want to give nuclear weapons to terrorists. And so having come as Lord Korma, Krishna came again, the same pastime. He actually comes three times in three different avatars in the same pastime. It's the only one like that. So he... <laughs> Oh, lights. Uh, actually, I was going to mention that. It's kind do, of dark. Do we have any more lights? We don't. Is there a lamp anywhere here? Is there a lamp anywhere? If you, yeah, if you, there's a little switcher. Maybe you can get this light brighter. It's the one on the top right, the blue one. Uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I guess that's what we've got here. Yeah, brighter, brighter, stop. Because it'll start getting darker. Very good. Well done. 
So, um, so having served as the platform upon which Mount Meru was placed, then Krishna came again as Mohini Murti. And you know, this very attractive woman and sort of said to the Asuras, hey, big boys, <laughs> where'd you get that nectar? <laughs> and so to make, to make a long story short, he wheedled the nectar out of them and gave it to the demigods, which the Asuras did not at all appreciate. And so they, bless you, then a war broke out between the Asuras and the Suras, the demigods. And it, the Asuras resorted sort of this dark magic. Like in Harry Potter, there's the good magic and the bad magic. So they resorted to the bad magic. And so Krishna came a third time. He came a third time, as this time as Vishnu riding on the back of Garuda. And I should mention that of course, the main commander of the Asuras was Bali Maharaj, but another very important general was Viprachitti, who is the first of the Danavas, uh, Danu. The goddess Danu had all these sons who unfortunately uh, turned out to say the least to be non-devotees. And, um, <clears throat> So the first one was Viprachitti, this very powerful general. So when Vishnu appeared, riding on the back of Garuda, if you, if you read carefully the, the verses, you find that Vishnu did not attack the demons. He just showed up there. And then one of the demons named Kalanemi, sort of means the time rim, because time is compared to a wheel. So the rim that's just like smashing everything, time, the time rim, Kalanemi. He immediately struck the first blow. He threw a trident forcefully at Garuda to kill Garuda. And so Vishnu just caught it in his hand, the trident, and threw it back at Kalanemi so such force that it went through him, through his lion mount, and just ding went into the ground. So so that's no more Kalanemi. So now, at that point, uh, if we read the history, we can surmise just by reading what happened that the, that the Asuras really divided into two camps. Uh, Bali Maharaj, who did not want to fight against Vishnu, uh, simply challenged Indra, which provoked, of course, another avatar, Vamana. So Bali just went straight to the kingdom of heaven to fight Indra, sort of fair and square, and defeated Indra. And then, of course, Vamana came. However, other Asuras had more nefarious plans. They really wanted to take over the universe just by um, sort of underhanded means. Also important here is that uh, Professor White, uh, who in Sanskrit is Shukracharya, that's what it means, Professor White. He um, he has a power, which I assume he still has, called Sanjeevani, which is almost like revival. You think of like like uh, like Vida or Vivi, like life, and then revival, bringing back to life. So if, of course, the Asuras were his clients, and so 
if an Asura was killed, but his body was not destroyed or terribly mutilated, then Sukhachara could bring them back to life. So he did bring these people back to life. And then they hatched a plot between Viprachiti, this great Asura general, who wasn't attracted to Vishnu, the way Bali was, and Kalanemi. And they were going to invade an unsuspecting planet lower than their level, take over this planet, and then sort of use it as a Death Star to attack the universe. So uh, the planet they chose was Earth. So when Prabhupada begins his Krishna book saying that once the world was overrun by the unnecessary military forces of demons disguised as king, demons disguised as kings doesn't mean just that real kings belong to the Hare Krishna movement, and these kings didn't. It actually means that they were uh, they were suras described disguised kings. They actually weren't human. They were beings from higher demonic planets who invaded the earth. And uh, so just to speed up ahead, then I'll come back. Uh, Viprachiti came down as actually the most powerful asura. In our 10th canto in the Bhagavatam, of course, because it focuses on Krishna and the main demon that Krishna dealt with was Kangsa, as we think of Kangsa. But actually the most powerful demon who was the father-in-law of Kangsa and who um, had these great, great armies. You never hear about Kangsa leading an army. He kind of has these cronies. He has all these friends of his who have these, these great mystic powers, the power of Kama Rupa, desire body. Desire form, which means they could like Trinavarta um, and uh, the witch. Putana. Putana. Yeah, Trinavarta uh, means grass whirler because he was like a cyclone. That's one of the words for like a cyclone, a grass whirler. So Trinavarta, like Trinadapi, so Trinavarta, and then Putana and, you know, Keshi and Danuka and all these nice people. So Kangsa sends his agents who are these powerful mystics, but you never hear about Kangsa leading a conventional army. But his father-in-law, because Kangsa married this great leader's two daughters, Asti and Prapti, his daughter is, um, his father-in-law was the most powerful demon by far, and that was Viprachiti, who took birth as Jarasandha. So, so that, that was the, the story from the eighth canto. And then, of course, I'm explaining what happens after that. In the meantime, around that time, roughly around that time, something else had happened on Earth, which made the Earth a very inviting target. And that is that Parashuram, which means in Sanskrit sort of uh, acts, acts, acts pleasure or like, you know, he really, Rama, he took pleasure in his choppers, you know, his hatchet. Parashu, Parashu means an axe or hatchet, and then Rama taking pleasure. <clears throat> so, as we know, Parashuram came when the Kshatriyas rebelled against the Brahmins, and uh, he killed them all. He killed, and to show you how this happened so long before Krishna came, 
when the Mahabharata story takes place, uh, Parashuram is still on the earth. In fact, Karna, who's the same generation as the Pandavas and Krishna, uh, approached Parashuram, so he's still there. But when Parashuram killed all the kings, obviously it was a problem, major. Not only a political problem, because who's going to govern the world? It's going to be chaos. But also it was a personal problem because you had all these young Kshatriya girls. There's no one to marry. So the sort of the wise people decided that these young Kshatriyas, this is a feminine word, Kshatriya, the young Kshatriyas would approach the purest Brahmins who would give them sons. And that's what they did. So the result was, as the Mahabharata emphasizes, that the earth became so sublime, there was no crime, there was not even like lying or cheating. And it was as if such a yuga had returned. That's what the Mahabharata says repeatedly. It was as if such a yuga had returned. And you find kings like Pratipa, who's the father of Shantanu, and therefore the uh, grandfather, or great grandfather, yeah, of Bhishma, grandfather of Bhishma, and of um, and great grandfather of Pandu, the great great grandfather of the Pandavas. And so you have Pratipa. What's he doing as king of the Kurus? He's sitting in the bank of the Ganges, meditating, doing yoga, just for the benefit of all beings. And and then you get another powerful figure, Vasu, who's going to become very important in the story. Vasu's a major figure, devotees don't know about him so much. He's a very major figure in the Mahabharata. And what's he doing? Meditating, doing yoga. Of course, in his case, he, anyway, so we'll get back to Vasu, but so therefore, the Asuras looked around, you know, I guess the galaxy, and they thought, wow, easy pickings. You know, the earth, because here you have this earth, which is prosperous, it's booming. It's a time of economic plenty, and there's no crime. There's no problem, so the kings just do yoga. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, they're sort of naive and unsuspecting great place to take over. So how do the Asuras plan to take over? Well, first, you know, you know, that uh, uh, we read in the beginning of the 10th canto how uh, the earth took the form of a uh, uh, cow, went to see Brahma, and they went to the ocean of milk and spoke to Vishnu. But exactly when did that happen? Well, I'll explain what, when I think it actually happened. So anyway, uh, so the Asuras are clever. They're not just like Goons. I mean, they're they're very smart. They're misguided at the deepest level, but material affairs are actually quite sharp, and so they have a couple strategies. This is all, this is all from the Mahabharata. One strategy is that they take birth as ferocious animals because that way they can kill the Brahmins without violating Dharma, because they know that you sort of pile up points when you do yoga austerities, and then you sort of spend it when you do bad things, either when you try to enjoy some special way or do bad things. So they also, this is very clever, they take birth 
in the families of the greatest dynasties, they take birth in the greatest dynasties, so that without firing an arrow, they can actually take over kingdoms. So they're using their power to choose their birth to actually take over kingdoms. And um, then, so let's go back just a little bit. <clears throat> there was a prince named Vasu, and as you'll see why is he got the name Uparichara Vasu, which literally means upwardly mobile Vasu. Because he was a member of the Kuru dynasty. He was actually in the Kuru line, but he was a secondary line. He wasn't of the main line that actually inherited the rule of Hastinapur. Hastinapur was the traditional capital of the Kurus. And so often in history, whether in Europe or in India, other places, there are more princes than there are kingdoms to go around. <laughs> So he doesn't really have a kingdom to inherit. He thinks, like, what am I doing on this planet? So he goes to an ashram, a remote ashram, to to perform yoga. And he thinks maybe I'll become an Indra. You know, nothing's happening down here. Maybe they got a better party going on up there. So Indra comes down to him. Indra comes down. And besides, you know, the predictable thing, you don't really want to be Indra, do you? But he doesn't, but he's actually treats him very nicely. And because, and this is now, this is my interpretation as a historian of what happened, because in a sense, this had to have happened to explain everything else. And, and Madhvacharya said some things in Mahavarata when lost, so I'm sort of trying to reconstruct this. That basically, Indra, he would have told Vasa, you should stay here on earth, which he does tell him actually, you should stay here on earth. And, and be a king on earth. And of course, Basu would say, I'm not a king, and earth doesn't need kings. You know, there's not even shoplifting, not to speak of like violent crime. And so, Indra, knowing how the earth is being invaded, empowered, again, this is how I read it, so I'm sort of connecting the dots of all kinds of things in Mahabharata. Basically, Indra appointed Vasu as the emperor. So, so Vasu is contemporary with Pratipa in Hastinapur, but it was not the king of Hastinapur who was the king of kings, which was normally the case. It was Vasu who was given the kingdom of Chedi. If you know India, where Prabhupada used to live in Jansi, it's a little below that, sort of little, that general area of Jansi. And so, he makes him the king of Chedi, and he makes him the emperor of the world. So the center of political and military power shifts from Hastinapur to Chedi, and the capital of Chedi is in English, you would just say Pearl River. Sutimati, so there's a Pearl River is the capital. And then Indra gives uh, Vasu this very cool thing. It's a crystal airship that moves by the mind. Hmm. I mean, sorry, Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> so it gives him this 
crystal airship that's moved by the mind and which I understand to mean that he was supposed to protect the earth because he can go everywhere. But now the Asuras are very clever. So this is Indra's plan. Before Krishna comes down, this is like typical if you read the Bhagavatam Mahabharata, like Indra takes his best shot and then when it doesn't work, then he has, then Vishnu has to come, which can't be too pleasing to Indra because it's like, okay, Indra, step aside, you can do it. So, so that was Indra's plan, that I will personally empower a royal family on earth. I will give them, you know, like fantastic paraphernalia, like crystal airship that can go anywhere, and they will protect the earth and the Asuras. And of course, that plan becomes completely sabotaged because, well, for, well anyway, uh, this Vasu has a daughter who's Satyavati, who will give birth to Vyasa. So you see, Vasu is an important figure. But then Vasu has a son named Brihadratha, who conquers the kingdom of Magadha, which is a very important kingdom, basically now Bihar state. It was much more important back then. But then, what do the big Asuras do when they see Indra's plan? They take birth in the very family that was supposed to keep them out, and they take over that dynasty. Because um, Vasu's son is Brihadratha, his son is Jarasandha, Viprachete. So you can see what they're doing. And so, in my analysis, as a historian, when Indra's plan collapsed and the demons through Jarasandha actually took over the very dynasty that was supposed to protect Earth from the Asuras, at that point, Bhumi went to Brahma because she would not go to Brahma until her boss, who's Indra, tried his plan. I mean, he wouldn't go over your boss's head. So when Indra's plan failed, then she went to Brahma when, when they all went to Vishnu. So this is all going on. And of course we know that when uh, Bhumi went to Brahma, they went to Vishnu and Inju, and uh, Vishnu says to the demigods, Upajanyatam, you should take birth now. You should, you should take birth now on the earth. So, other things are going on. I mean, there's so much going on. There's so much news, like Kangsa. Kangsa, who almost kills his cousin's sister, Devaki. So there's, there's all kinds of interesting things. Vichitraviriya is a very interesting figure. You know, that is, that's the younger son of Shantanu. And... Um, Vyasa on his widows begets Dhritarashtra, Vidura, and uh, Pandu. So anyway, um, but getting back to Sandamani's point, uh, when the world was really threatened, just as it is now, because you have these just bizarre freaks who have somehow achieved political power in different countries like this one. People who are, it's not even clear they're sane. 
and we find that I mean there were Roman emperors who were crazy when their U.S. presidents were crazy like like now. So, um, but Krishna saved the world. That's so significant that Krishna saved our planet, and He will do it again, as Prabhupada said. So, what we we members of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, we are trying to achieve that supreme mercy of Krishna of being accepted as his instruments. And so it's 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 Kali Yuga now, not Dwapara Yuga. But still there are all these demons and they infiltrate even religions, spiritual movements. And so um So that whole thing is thrilling. I mean, you know, we, we can read about it, but imagine if you were there at the time. Imagine if that was the headlines, that was the world news. You'd be very shocked, isn't it? That, uh, so, any questions on these points before I follow? <laughs> <laughs> yes? How did uh, the distributor, uh, like, what killed him? His honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> the Chitravera is a very interesting figure. He, he um, for one thing, he's the only case we know of where a prince didn't show up at his own Swayamvara. I mean, it wasn't his Swayamvara, it was the, these three very beautiful princesses of Kashi whose names were Amba, Ambika, and Ambalika, which if you know Spanish, it exactly means in Sanskrit, Amba, Ambita, and Ambitita. It's like Amba, little Amba, and little Vidi Amba. <laughs> That's what it means in Sanskrit. Amba, Ambika, Ambalika. So, um, he didn't even go. And so I think, I mean, these are the kinds of things I'm doing to reconstruct the history. Like why wouldn't he go to his own, to the Swayamvara to win? Because that's what you do. You go there, you show your prowess, and you win the princesses, and he just, he doesn't go. And so, um, for one thing, his older brother, Chitrangada, shockingly died at a very young age because he got into a duel with a Gandharva and lost. I mean, it went on forever because Chitranga was very powerful, his son of Shantanu. But ultimately he was killed. And that was a shock to the dynasty, to the Guru dynasty. It was just it was very shocking because there were only two princes, which was not a lot, not a big number. You wanted more. It's like Vasu had five sons. <clears throat> I mean, Rasa had 100 sons, there were five Pandavas, so uh, the life expectancy for Kshatriyas was not always long. So having only two sons was better than nothing, but it was still dangerous. And then at a very young age, before marrying and even having heirs, sons, Chitrangada uh, was killed. And so you can understand why there was this concerted effort in the Kuru court 
to protect the Chitraveria because if he died, they were really, I mean, it would be a constitutional crisis. The whole empire would be in danger. And, and also it appears he didn't have a really strong constitution because that's what the Bhagavatam says. He got Yakshma, which is sort of uh, translated as, um, not dropsy, but, um, oh my God, what's that word again? Forgetting all these things, it's like pneumonia. And uh, so, so if he didn't have a strong constitution, consumption, that's what it's also called. That's the old word, consumption. So if he didn't have a strong constitution and he was the last heir and hadn't yet gotten any sons, you could see how they were really protective of him. And so he didn't go to his own, in the Svayanvara, which he was supposed to you know, get princesses. And Bhishma went, it was kind of like, kind of like the, you know, some great NFL team playing against a high school football team and like, I wonder who's gonna win this. <laughs> so Bhishma went and brought back these princesses and um, then one of the most um, powerful stories, it's just, it's just so powerful. I mean, for, for someone like me, I'm trying to write, be a writer, it's just, um, it's not intimidating, but it's, it's such a powerful story that it's really a challenge to do justice to it. And that is the story of Umba, because she already had a little private agreement with uh, Shalva that she was going to marry him. That's who she wanted to marry. But then Bhishma came and it was, he just kind of blew everyone else away and took all three girls. <clears throat> And of course, Shalva tried to win her back and Bijma smashed him and etc. That was a level of humiliation that was just unbearable. So, so when Bijma gets back to the Kuru court with these three girls, Umba explains humbly that actually I already gave my heart to someone. And so I guess Bijma tries to convince her to stay. No, actually he doesn't. Well, well, he, well, he, yeah, he sent, no, that's right. First he sent her, first he sent her back to Shal, Shalva, who was sort of this macho, well, I can't say the word here because it's a Hare Krishna program, but anyway, sort of macho um, guy. And he's insulted that she would even come back. Like after Bhishma humiliated me and after you spent the night, that was a big thing. You spent the night in their house. That was a big deal. And that, course I'm not going to take you back and she was begging him you know I love you we love each other and all that and so so she's heartbroken and so she goes back to the Kurus she explains to Bees what happened she says okay so now I'll stay here but then Bhishma sort of invokes the same rule that well you spent that you, you know you went to his door <laughs> and um so you really have to put yourself in Umba's place. Because here is, first of all, she's the eldest of three daughters, which means that she always had the best of everything. She grew up as this, um, you know, princess of an important kingdom. 
I'm sure anything she ever desired was given to her at once. And uh, nothing ever went wrong. She was beautiful. She was intelligent. She had a completely charmed life. There was nothing but success. And it was just a matter of course. She'll marry some famous prince and she'll be a, a world leader. And then suddenly when she goes to, after she went to Chalva and then she's rejected, which shocked her beyond description. And then she goes back and they reject her and suddenly this princess who was, a, you know, one of the leading princesses in the world, most sought after, very beautiful, she sees her life just crumbling in front of her eyes and her options are running out. Like, and so you can understand her panic. It's like she's suddenly panicking because everything is just falling apart. Not only is she not going to get the man she loved, who I'm sure she now thinks is a jerk, but not only is she not going to get the man she loved, but she's actually even falling out of respectable society. I mean, you can imagine the shock. This carefully protected, beautiful princess that just lived as a princess. And so she goes back and forth. I think probably exaggerating some of the text. I mean, I'm sure she didn't do like, you know, 12 visits each or something, but because one couple of visits be enough, but and then she she's facing this horrible truth that she never could have imagined that her life has been destroyed. Her life is actually destroyed, that no respectable prince will ever accept her. And it's like worse than death. She's suddenly this girl who had nothing but success and opulence and fame and beauty has been like she's been destroyed her life is destroyed and there's no way to rebuild it and she's so traumatized by this that she um and she's a real kshatriya lady and she really is a kshatriya and so she goes to this ashram where all these sannyasis and sages are meditating because she wants to give up the world. I mean, the world, she's, she's done in the world. There's nothing but disgrace, shame, and it's worse than death. So she, in her mind, there's nothing to do but to renounce the world now. And so she goes to this ashram and she tells her story. I think this is very interesting because this is an ashram of sannyasis, but she finds among the sannyasis her own grandfather. And he puts her on his lap. And all of the sannyasis, all of the sages, when they hear her story, they're actually all in tears. So this sort of like neophyte, twisted thing of the, you know, the macho sannyasi won't look at a woman and all that. I mean, I mean, these sages, they were actually in tears. They were, I mean, to hear what happened to her. And so they tell her, like, let us send you back to your father. You live with your parents. And, and she says, no, she's never going back to the world. The disgrace, the shame is too much. It's more than she can bear. And she then reveals her purpose, that she is going to practice the most, what's the word? 
just almost like frightening yoga austerities and she's going to get the power in her next life to kill Bhishma because there's nothing for her now but revenge she's not a Brahmani she's a Kshatriya and they keep trying to dissuade her and tell her you know I mean, you know whatever we have we'll give you we'll go back to your family or just practice you know meditation with us but she's determined and then she begins to practice austerities and yoga so ferociously that even the others these elder sannyasis are like just awed by it they you know almost frightened by it and then there's the scene where she achieves the perfection she wants and the boon she wants and she's just you know emaciated she's just this beautiful princess and then she throws herself into the fire because she knows she has the power she needs. She's anxious to get to her next life. She throws herself into the fire and her last words are to the killing of Bhishma. This is to kill Bhishma. And then she takes birth as a powerful prince the son of um, Drupada. There's this powerful prince named Shikandi. And she kills Bhishma. So it's a, it's a powerful story, isn't it? I mean, I just, it's just, it's just, it's just such a powerful story. She took birth as a woman first, yeah? No, that's all a farcical interpolation. Okay. I mean, I won't go on later, I can tell you, but it's okay. for many reasons. I mean, there are certain, Madhvacharya says that he says there's there are text corruptions throughout. Mm. And that one's just, oh, I'll mention some of the farcical things like Drupada is, you know, he's a great Maharata warrior, he's one of the greatest warriors in the world, personal friend of Pandu. And so, Anyway, well, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just so silly and ridiculous that he actually, because also we know from the Gita, Jung Jung Bhapis, Manan Bhapis, whatever you remember at the time of death, and she, and Ambas thinking of nothing but Bhishma mm -hmm. and killing Bhishma. There's always interesting things, isn't it? Another figure, which, you know, it's interesting how Prabhupada said that, you know, Kshatriya will never turn away from a fight. But they weren't fools and they weren't suicidal. So, for example, I mean, when it was, if it was a fair fight, yeah, but not if it's just they're going to be slaughtered. <clears throat> for example, at Devaki's wedding, when Kangsa is going to kill her, I mean, think of it, Dev, Devaki's own father, Devaka, was there. He didn't step forward. Here you have Kangsa is going to kill his own daughter and he didn't do anything. And Vasudeva's a Kshatriya, he didn't do anything either because it was suicide. Because it would have been suicide against Kamsa. So the Kshatriyas, they're, you know, they don't, they're not foolish. But Devaka is very interesting. He's the same generation as um, Vichitra Virya. Anyway, 
There's so many things that went to. But so any questions on these stories? So when Bhishma said, so what's the actual fact? Because Bhishma said, no, I will not just put Chikandi in front of Arjuna. I will never shoot at someone who used to be a woman. But that's ridiculous because every man used to be a woman. Is that what he meant? So what is no, but it's, it's ridiculous. Okay, since you brought it up again, I don't, in my view, that's not what actually happened. I think, you see, it gets into the whole... And why did you put Shikundi in front of him? He didn't. Oh. It's, we put Shikundi in front because Shikundi had the power to kill Bhishma. Oh, okay. And Arjuna yeah, didn't. He had the power. Yeah. Shikundi is a man's name. Shikundi is a man. Yeah. So. So it was Shikundi's arrow that killed Bhishma, not Arjuna? I'd like to go back to that, but that, yeah, I mean, Shikandi was given the boon to kill Bhishma, and he did. The Mahabharata is a very corrupted text, what we have now. For example, I'll tell you. So, according to the corrupted Mahabharata, um, Amba took birth of Shikandini. Mm -hmm. And then, now, now start all the impossible. It's, it's just like this farcical, carnivalesque thing that was put into the story for entertainment. Uh, Shikandini is of marriage age. She's already married, but her father doesn't know it's a daughter. I mean, really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anyone that ever had a kid, you know, you, let's say a, a you know, woman, you have a daughter, and the kid's maybe 16 to 18 years old, and your husband doesn't know it's a girl. I mean... <laughs> Then, so that happened, a king comes to marry his daughter to what Jupiter thinks is his son. But then they have some kind of examination of gender before the marriage, which, first of all, that doesn't exist either. And also the, the king who comes is someone that no one's ever heard of in the Mahabharata and only appears in the whole Mahabharata just with this one little farce and so when it's discovered by an examination which no no one ever actually really did when it's discovered that Jupiter's son is actually a girl and that Jupiter is going to marry a girl to the other king's daughter uh the other king you know gets angry and wants to kill Jupiter and chases him it's like a farcical scene chases him all around the palace you know under the kitchen table everywhere <laughs> And here you have a king that no one's ever heard of, doesn't even appear anywhere except in this little made-up story. And here you have Jupiter, who's one of the greatest warriors on earth, and he's just running away and he's afraid and you know, running high and running low. I mean, the whole thing is just absurd. And then what happens is Shikandini, the girl, in order to save her father, she goes out into the woods, and this is right out of like Grimm's fairy tales, you know, goes right out into the woods it meets the yaksha. Yakshas are kind of like, not elves, but kind of they have these powers, sort of like these, you know, like in Grimm's fairy tales, like people with magic powers who live in forests. So he goes into the forest, finds this yaksha, who is a male, and tells him that he will, I forget, he'll do something for him or give him something if the yaksha shares his, if he's willing to trade genders. So, I mean, none of this actually goes on, you know, in Vedic So then 
So then uh, Shikandini becomes, gets a male gender and becomes Shikandi. And the Yaksha ma magician becomes a woman. And then later, uh, who is it? Kuvera, the Lord of the Yakshas, comes and finds out that one of his servants gave his gender away. And like in this wonderfully chauvinistic, you know, what? What a degradation. Then, then he, he attacks him. And it just goes on and on and on like this. It's all very farcical. The other part of the model, and, and, and it's, it has nothing to do with reality. I mean, it has nothing to do with the story. Another part, which is very uh, almost like comically formulaic and carnivalesque, as one important scholar said, is the Virat Parva. Is what? Virat Parva. The exile. That's yeah. the pond of his, their one year incognito, they go to Virat. Oh, really? I really like that. <laughs> no, I'm not saying it didn't happen. <laughs> no, no. Okay, okay. Let me um, let me let me clarify a confusion I just created. That that really happened. I mean, the pandas really did go there to hide, and they really did in basic things. But but here's the farcical part. Well, it's not a farce if you know what really happened. Because what happens is, first of all, the Pandavas, or I think was it 13 years, cognito, 13 years in the forest, and everyone in the world knew where they were. They were world leaders. Everyone knew where they were. And many great uh, Kshatriyas and sages went to visit them in the forest. It was public knowledge where they were. And then when they had to go incognito one year, there's an obvious logistical nightmare. Because the rules were that if Duryodhana discovered them during their incognito year, it was like 12 or 13 more years in the forest. And so how did the Pandavas go from where they were, where everyone knew who they were, where they were? How do you get to Virat, Kingdom of Virat, without everyone knowing it? They had a boon, I thought. He just there got a boon when he had to answer those three questions. And um, it said them, and it was actually um, Dharmaraj's father, and they gave him the boon that said, "Okay, you guys will be discovered during your last year of incognito." Okay, but let's say, let's say they got that boon. That's not anyway. I won't go into all my problems with Mahabharata, but um, and of course these stories aren't in the Bhagavatam. So, so even if that was the case, if that was the case. How did that boom work? Because what you have is um, well, the Kurus and, and other governments, they have these huge espionage networks. They have these massive intelligence services. And so there's Triodan spies are everywhere. So how do the Pandavas just walk into Virat? And they walked. They lived because they didn't take their chariot. So and then when they go to the kingdom of, when they go to the, 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 the royal palace, um, first Yudhisthira walks in. It's extremely formulaic. That's kind of a tip off that it's extremely formulaic in the sense that um, there's a formula, like a little thing, and every Pandava says the same thing, and Virat replies the same thing, and then even with Draupadi. So first of all, Virat knew the Pandavas because he went to the Rajasuya sacrifice. So he knew the Pandavas, 
you could say that it was still, you know, they got a bone that no one would have recognized it. But, and so they so Eudister first walks into Virat's throne room. Another thing you have to understand is that Virat actually was not the king. I mean, he was the king officially, but the real power had been usurped by Kichika, which becomes very important later. So, um, so the king says, who are you? And, he, and Yudhisthira gives his false name, and I'm a Brahmin, I teach gambling. And, um, and then Virat says, well, you don't look like a Brahmin. I don't think you're a Brahmin. He says, no, I really am. Okay, you're a Brahmin. <laughs> so I'll, put, I'll make you a minister. You can be in charge of a whole department of my government. He just met him three minutes ago. <laughs> and he puts him in charge of a whole department of his government just because, and no, I really am a Brahmin. <laughs> Plus, Virat uh, already knew him because he went to the road to sacrifice. And then the Bhima comes in. And he's and King says, Who are you? Oh, I am a cook and a wrestler. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, I really am. Okay, you can be in charge of the kitchen. I mean, if you're in charge of the king's kitchen, it means you can poison him. I mean, you know, kings were extremely careful about who was in their kitchen because they could be poisoned. And he's never even sampled Bima's cooking. <laughs> he just puts him in charge of. All, you know, the wrestling puts him in charge of the kitchen. Never met him before. So three minutes later, you're in charge of an important part of my government. And then Arjun walks in, same thing, and ditto the twins. And then Draupadi, who are you? I'm a hairdresser. <laughs> <laughs> I, I run beauty salons. And so, Sirundri, and then the king says, you don't look like that. I don't think that's who you are. Yeah, I really am. Okay. <laughs> So, does Madhvacharya cite these like Virat and No, he doesn't talk about details. He's more his concern is more with trying to show that Bhima is more important than Arjun was kind of a particular thing for his movement. But um, we know that another thing is Virat wasn't really in charge because later on in the story, when the uh, followers of Kichik after he's killed, I call them the Kichikitos. <laughs> the followers of Kichik, uh, they want to throw Draupadi in the fire because their master was killed trying to get Draupadi. And so um, Draupadi runs to the king and says, you have to stop him. And, and by the way, that Kichik is the king's brother-in-law. But when they try, when, or even the Kichikitos, and the king says, I can't do anything, because actually they've taken over the government. Kichika is a demon, and his followers of Kichikitos, they're actually called Anu Kichikas, or something like that, which means Kichikitos. <laughs> and so um, the king can't protect Draupadi because he's afraid of the real power in the kingdom, which is. Um, Kichik and his followers. So, yes. From this we can conclude that the uh, the uh, hack Bollywood uh, script writers have been a long Quran Quran tradition in interrupting <laughs> the text. Yeah. There was film. 
Yeah, yeah. It's a, because it was an oral tradition for thousands of years, and it's much too big to memorize. And so you can look at Mahabharata manuscripts, surviving physical manuscripts from different parts of India, and there are some differences. I mean, it's still the same story, basically. And um, so the Bhagavatam corrects it, because the last thing I'll say is getting late, and... Uh, In the first canto of the Bhagavatam, in chapter 4, we learn that despite all his perfections and contributions, Vyasa was depressed. So then beginning of chapter 5, his guru comes to him, Narada Muni. Narada comes and um, speaks in a very strong, I don't know if it comes out in the English translation, but Referring to all of his work, including the Mahabharata, Narada says, Jugupsitam, Dharma Kritan Shastam, which means it's abominable. It's terrible. You can look at the Burton dictionary. That's what it is, Jugupsitam, terrible, horrible, abominable. Jugupsitam, Dharma Krite, for the sake of Dharma, Anushastam, what you've taught. The idea was that, you know, it was like a bridge program. It was Vyasa's bridge program. So, Mahan Gatikrama, literally a great transgression. So, then Narada gives Vyasa nectar, tells him about how I came to Krishna consciousness. And, and so then Vyasa is enlightened, of course, and he knows what he has to do. So then when Narada, when Narada just took off you know, went wherever he desired. What does Vyas do? He sits down in Samadhi. He gets focused by personally realizing and seeing the three great tattvas, the three great fundamental realities of the world, which are God, souls, and nature. And then he starts correcting the Mahabharata. Starting in chapter 7, till the end of the first canto, it's all just correcting the Mahabharata. And even if like the Mahabharata has some problems, and but then it was corrupted so much after that, just by you know over time. Was that your main drive in wanting to translate that particular book? write about it is to correct all the misconceptions well i just started at the beginning i just want to start at the beginning but um yeah i want to do a historical novel because the mahabharata i mean it's it's a big book but it's not that big the reason it's so big is because it has just like innumerable side stories which are called upakyana sort of junior narrations i mean just they're just they go, they go on yeah. forever so if you take out all the side stories, it's kind of, that's what Charles Dickens did. That's why his books are so big, too. So if you take out all the side stories and just tell the main story without repetitions, which is another problem that occurred, it's a big book, but not that big. You know, it's maybe a book like that or something. <sighs> anyway, there's so much, I got to get to work. So actually, this is my last... Um, for a while I have to really get to work and write but thank you so much Sandamani Sandamani really is a wonderful Vaishnavi
She'll try to stop me now, but she can't. She really has done amazing devotional service. And of course, there are many good devotees here. And being able to attract and retain good devotees is itself an achievement. How did you select the stories for that book? Oh, I was invited to give a week of lectures, morning and evening, actually twice a day, at that, what's it called? Big Yoga Ashram in the Bahamas and Paradise Island. I forget the name of it. The Shivananda Yeah. And so uh, that's what I did. I kind of went through the Mahabharata. But and then uh, it was made into a book. Okay. So you didn't select for the book. Your editor selected. No, no, that's pretty much the lectures. Oh. Okay. So, should we give out prasadam? Yeah. To the pro to the privileges. Oh, thank you, thank you all very much, and thank you all of you who are on Facebook. I don't want to forget you. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't give you personally give you prasadam. <laughs>